Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Last week, we came to the very sad conclusion in the text here in John chapter 11. After the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day had convened a meeting to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus, they, they come up with a verdict, and the verdict is found for us in verse 53. That's, that's where we left off last week, verse 53, they'd come and they deliberated among themselves, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They'd come and they'd spoken about what they should do about this Jesus and this Jesus movement that is growing every day. Growing because of what had just taken place with him raising Lazarus from the dead. And they'd, they'd concluded these men with authority, these men who were supposed leaders and shepherds of Israel. They concluded that this Jesus needs to be put to death. Not because he's guilty. That's, that's not why they conclude he's not guilty of any offense. Not because he's violated any law. That wasn't it at all. No, simply it's because it was in their best interest. It was expedient for them to put Jesus to death. Why? Because this Jesus was disrupting all their plans. They liked the way things were. They'd worked on the status quo for a while. And they'd built up a system, a system made by men, where they had the respect of the the people. They had the respect of the Roman governors. And they had benefits that came their way. And they didn't want to see any of those dissipated. And with Jesus, who is not compatible with their way, because as we said last week, Jesus comes sent in the name of of God, in the name of the Father. Jesus represents the way of God, and they represent the way of man. And the way of God does not correspond or coincide, it does not agree with the way of man. And therefore, the only conclusion they could come up with was that this Jesus needs to be eliminated. These men who we've previously spoken about, who differed on so many points, theologically, they couldn't see eye to eye. Religiously, they couldn't see spiritually. They didn't see eye to eye politically, practically. There were so many differences, but they agreed on one thing. That this Jesus needs to be put to death. Led by the high priest, Caiaphas, they take his advice and now they settle on murder. We need to murder this Jesus and eliminate him from among us. And that takes us to verse 54, where we left off last week. And they were told, Jesus, therefore, or because of this, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Word had made it to our Lord that these Religious and political leaders had made a verdict to kill him. Now, whether that it came by, by way of a person who'd come and told Jesus, or whether by divinely in his omniscience he'd come to know, we're, we're not told. But, but either way, the verdict had made known to him that the Jews wanted him dead. And so Jesus makes a decision. And that decision is for him to withdraw from among the people there in the region of Jerusalem and to take his disciples with him to a rural town by the name of Ephraim. I'm not exactly sure where Ephraim is. This is not the this is the town. Uh, most scholars have some form of agreement that is very likely 20 kilometers to the northeast of Jerusalem. Not real sure, but we know it is a rural area and we know this much. It is far enough from the, the, the danger zone of Jerusalem for Jesus and his disciples to be removed from the immediate threat that is upon Jesus' life. So the question that we ask and many ask who come to this text is why did Jesus go out that way? Was he cowering with fear? Was Jesus removing himself, motivated by anxiety because these men want him caught and killed? Is that the motivation behind why Jesus departed? If we have a very surface understanding of the Gospels, we'll quickly dismiss those thoughts. Jesus never acted in fear. He never acted out of 
anxiety. He's perfect in his faith and composure. The son of God. No, no, that's not it at all. Jesus was acting according to the divine calendar that the Father had given him. And as the Apostle John has told us so many times previously, and no need for him to reiterate it again for us, but we can conclude the reason why Jesus departed from this place and went to a more serene rural location where there was no heat from the people of Jerusalem, the leaders in Israel, the leaders in Jerusalem, was because his hour had not yet come. That Jesus will be handed over by these scribes, by the chief priests, by the Pharisees to the officials. And he will be crucified, but not right now. His hour had not yet come. And when his hour had come for him to be glorified, we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ, our Lord, will set his gaze upon, like flint upon Jerusalem. And he will go to Jerusalem to do that which the Father has decreed for him to do. But right now is not the time. He will go to the city that kills the prophets. But right now is not the time. So Jesus withdraws and takes his disciples to a remote location, not out of fear, not out of anxiety, not because he's, he's somehow afraid that he'll be killed, but rather because his timing is according to the divine calendar of the Lord. We need to keep that in our minds as he tells us that he no longer walks openly among the Jews. Now I want us to take a moment and consider that sad reality. That Jesus no longer walks openly among the Jews. I can't tell you whether that's for a week or several weeks. I can't imagine it's more than several weeks because we don't exactly have a time stamp here at the end of John chapter 11. We do at the beginning of John chapter 12. That's six days out of the Passover. We can work on time there. But right now we're not 100% sure. It could be a week or it could be several weeks at most. But what we need to realize, beloved, and what we need to contemplate right now as we think this thing through is that the only hope of Israel because of selfish, self-seeking, hardened hearts of the leaders of Israel who rejected him. The only hope of Israel, the anointed of God, withdraws himself from among their midst. Christ withdraws. The Lord has been in Jerusalem He's been there before. We, we know that as a fact. He's been to several other feasts. He's, he's had toe-to-toes with the religious leaders of the day. He's had many discussions. He's preached. He's taught. He's made many claims among these people. He's been to the feasts and the temple and the holy city. A number of occasions. We know that absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. And the Jews, to begin with, were interested with what he had to say. There was a level of curiosity with the religious leaders of the day to hear what this Jesus had to say because he came with power and there was undeniably the power of God upon him. But that interest and that curiosity slowly turned. Maybe he could be the Messiah, they're thinking to themselves. But there was a point where no longer were they thinking clearly like that, but rather their flesh took hold and what Jesus began to say or was continuing to teach rather became an offense to their sensibilities, became offense to their flesh, became an offense to what they had built. As I said earlier, their structure is incompatible with the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that offense then turned out to outright indignation, an indignation that will not settle until Jesus was eliminated, until Jesus was gone. And now seeing that after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that there's been so many Jews who are now sympathetic to Christ and following after him. We'll see this as we work our way through chapter 12. Many have come. Even the Pharisees say all the world is following after Jesus. Now that they see that Mark tells us in his gospel that these men were motivated by envy. So not outright indignation only, but they had envy in their hearts because this Jesus is taking away what they thought they once had and what they, what they want. Leaders, so-called shepherds of Israel, beloved, pushed Jesus away. Not once, not twice, not three times, multiple times. And even though there's been much heat every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, he continued to return He continued to warn these religious leaders, telling them about the the error of their way and how their soul is in grave danger. But they thrust the light from among them. 
because they preferred darkness. They, they preferred to keep all their idols rather, th- rather than surrendering their idols and joyfully worshipping the only one worthy of worship. But he continued to come back. He, he continued to come back graciously and, and in mercy. But now here in John chapter 11, verse 54, he says, no more. They pushed our Lord and rejected him and reviled him and pushed his words and his truth one time too many. Now they remain in darkness. He will no longer walk openly among them. The one sent by the Father, the one who is wisdom personified, there's one greater than Solomon that is among you. The Messiah of God, the Messianic King, the one who has the words to eternal life, the very fountain of life, the only mediator between God and men, the Alpha and the Omega, the only hope of Israel. The light of the world will no longer be in their midst. Think about those words. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, John tells us in the first chapter. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The actions of these religious leaders of the day plunged Israel into darkness. As a result of their evil actions in pushing away the Messiah because of selfish agendas, the people of Israel will be devoid of the light. Let me ask you, how great will their judgment be? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you knew they enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The words of our Lord in Matthew 23, 13. It's with that in mind that our Lord utters the next words to the same people. Looking upon Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Over and again, our Lord opens his mouth and speaks the words of eternal life. And they took his presence, his words, his teachings, His claims for granted. Presuming upon grace. Oh, oh, that's a scary place to be. One day, he will no longer be found. Some may have blatantly pushed him away in rejection, but others may have thought in their minds, we'll get to him. We'll get to Christ. We don't want to give up our idols right now. We're just starting up. Wait until I am more financially secure. I'm still young. I've got plenty of time. Maybe when I grow up a little. Give me a moment or two. Give me a few years. I need to explore the world. I haven't got time right now for this Jesus who says that I've got to get up, give up everything, put self to death, carry my cross daily and follow after him. I, I, I see the point. And I believe that there's eternal life in him and there's salvation apart. There is no salvation apart from him. But right now I'm not ready. Just give me some time. I'll, I'll come to it. I've just got a lot on my plate right now. Let's just wait for a more convenient time. With every push, the heart is hardened. That little bit more every single time we reject the Lord. And that's foolishness. The scripture is so clear. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6. Do not presume upon the grace of God. There is no other time. Right now, right now is the right time. 
Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 2. Christ was teaching in the streets. He was teaching on the plains, on the hilltops, in the valley. He was teaching in people's homes. He was teaching on the, on the boats. He was teaching practically everywhere in public places. Making those public invitations. But from now on, he will no longer walk openly among the Jews. It's like this son woke up in the morning asking, where is he? Where is where's Jesus? Has he gone? Is he, is he coming back? Is Jesus coming back? And the answer is, apart from a brief week where some will see him before his crucifixion, no. Physically for the Jews, that's it. Because he said he's no longer going to walk openly among them. And so with tears in our Lord's eyes, looking upon Jerusalem, in Luke 19, we hear him say, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon, upon another. Because, here's the point, because you did not know the time of your visitation. God visited you. He spoke to you. He opened his mouth. And he proclaimed the words of eternal life. The gospel of grace. And you pushed him away. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. And now it's too late, is what Jesus is saying. What a terrifying reality, beloved. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely wholeheartedly believe in the election of the saints. I believe that there are some that are united in Christ and chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Of course I believe in the election of the saints. I believe in the security of the saints and the assurance that we should have in Christ Jesus, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. He holds us in the palm of His hand, in the Father's hand. Absolutely. But it's the same Savior who proclaims so comprehensively about the election of the saints that says to sinners that you must come and repent and believe upon Him. If one hides behind the doctrine, even the doctrine of election, when your conscience is being pierced, thinking you have time, that's presumption. And presumption has no place in the heart of the people of God. And in fact, presumption will show or will tell the state of that person's soul. And that's a dangerous place to be. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Keep short accounts. Seek him while he may be found. That's what he said. He, he says, the light is among you for a little while longer, Jesus says. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's never presume upon the grace of God. Jesus was walking among these people and just like that he decided to depart and withdraw with the disciples and no longer walk among them openly. Beloved, there's so much more I can say about this, this topic, but for the sake of time, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to actually leave it there, but I'm going to leave you with these words. The words that come from Proverbs chapter 1 that speak to this point. Starting from verse 24, listen to what the word of the Lord says. It speaks of, of the words of wisdom, wisdom personified. Because I have called and you have refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Now hear this. Then they will call upon me. 
and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. These are not my words. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they eat the fruit of their ways and they will have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster. Beloved, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That takes us to verse 45, 55, my apologies, to 57. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time this afternoon, in those three verses. So let me read them to you before I begin. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the, from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The Passover was at hand, and the Jews, oh, the Jews loved this feast. In fact, the Jews would celebrate many feasts throughout the Jewish calendar. But there were three main feasts, and, and you're, I'm hoping, all aware of those three main feasts. Able-bodied men were expected to come and to partake in these three main feasts if they had the means to do so. And they were, the first feast of the Jewish calendar was this one here, the Passover which was joined to the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day feast. The next feast comes seven weeks after the Feast of Pentecost, or otherwise known as the, the Feast of Weeks. And then we have the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would come and enjoy, or actually commemorate their ancestors, the provision of God and the protection of God upon their ancestors when they were in the in the wilderness for 40 for 40 years but what we have before us here beloved is the feast of feasts this was the preeminent feast in the jewish calendar the feast of passover it happens on the took it takes place on the 14th day of the very first month of the jewish calendar in the month of nisan and the text tells us that many had come, many Jews had come from all over the countryside and they come to, to Jerusalem quite early to purify themselves for the Passover. That's because when God or Yahweh had given Moses the instruction about how to, how to do this feast, how to partake and observe the, the Passover, it, it came with purity instructions because no one could approach the Lord unless they were ceremonially pure. The Lord was teaching his people that, that he is holy and, and you don't come and present yourself before him haphazardly, but, but you, you're concerned with purity. The outward purity was to, to point to the inward purity of the heart. And so if one wasn't ceremonially clean, then one would need to then purify him or herself to partake in the Passover. Uh, the book of Numbers gives us an example of how one could be un made unpure, and that would be if they, they touched a, a dead corpse. If you touched a dead, cor a dead corpse, then you would be ceremonially unclean for seven days, according to Numbers chapter 9. And ch Numbers chapter 19 will then give us the remedy. You need to then partake in ceremonial cleansings and washings over seven days before you would be deemed and worthy to partake in the Passover, the Passover of the Lord. Otherwise, there was provision also given to the people of Israel for a second Passover, which takes place on the second month, the 14th day of the second month. But, but the, this is the one that the, the Jews wanted to be part of. This is the grand feast that they were all looking forward to all year round. Now, many of the worshippers, we're told, came and made their way to Jerusalem. And now we see that there is a level of curiosity in their minds about Jesus. No doubt they've been made aware of the decision of the chief priests and the and the Pharisees, that now they're, they're seeking to arrest Christ 
to kill him. And so now they're asking questions among themselves because this has become public knowledge. Will Jesus come to this feast or will he not? They're used to seeing Jesus on the previous feast. Jesus made it to the feast. But this is the question they have on their mind. The reason they're asking is because now if Jesus was to make an appearance, it's going to be a costly appearance. Now we know that there would be some that would be sympathetic to Christ. Likely sincere. Likely wanting to know whether Jesus was going to come because they were concerned to hear his teaching and and to sit under his feet and and listen to the words of the, the good shepherd. To hear his voice and to grow in their understanding and their knowledge of God as a process. And it's likely perhaps that some had ill intent also. We are not told of either. The text doesn't tell us of their motivations. But let me tell you, the question in verse 56, it's a good question. It's actually a great question. Actually, unbeknown to these Jews, the the whole of human history hinges upon the true answer to this question. In other words, this Passover that's just about to take place, that is in question, is the apex. It's the zenith. It is the the pinnacle of all human history. All human history pivots upon what Jesus does on this Passover. Will it come to the feast? That's a profound question. Not only in the first century for the first century Jews, but that's a profound question that has impacted everyone since you and I need to need to acknowledge what Jesus did on this, on this Passover. But the question cannot be easily answered because it cannot be answered with a yes or a no. It needs to be unpacked. So we'll park the question for now. And we'll take a closer look at this preeminent feast called the Passover. And then by God's grace, I hope to come back and give you an accurate answer to that question. It's prudent for us to do this, beloved, and I feel that it must be done. And in the amount of time I have, I'm not going to be able to give justice to the big topic of Passover. So I know there'll be a lot left on the table, but I have to go there. I have to at least scratch the surface of this grand topic, Passover. Because although there's been previous Passovers mentioned even, and we've worked our way through the gospel according to John, and on two occasions Passover has been mentioned already, we need to know and be mindful of the fact that in the fourth gospel, from this point right now, where we are in this book, to the end of the book, which will take us a few years to get through, it all takes place in the time of the Passover. So from now to the end of the book will all take place around the vicinity of the time of the Passover. Around a little bit over a week or so, everything takes place. So where we're going to be in the next few years is going to be around the time of the Passover this year. And that's why it makes it important that we understand the context. So what is this Passover? As I said earlier, it is the Feast of Feasts. It's, it's, it's the grand festival for the people of Israel. Now there is a day in the calendar of the, of the Jews called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. That was the most holy day of the year. And this Passover is the grandest feast or festival, the most preeminent among all the feasts for the people of Israel. And the significance of both cannot be underestimated by, by Scripture. Because they are both types and shadows pointing to something far, far, far greater than themselves or the rituals themselves. The Jews from all over the country would make the pilgrimage to the holy city, the temple. They would come to the temple, the place that was centralized for worship, the place that that Yahweh approved to be worshipped. Because you remember in the wilderness where God said that his worship would be centralized, then the tabernacle, and now the temple. And it's the only place, the temple in Jerusalem was the only place whereby the Jews were able to sacrifice to God. So it's here that they need to come to to celebrate Passover. Why? Because there will be a flurry of sacrifices over that time. The population 
of Jerusalem during that seven-day feast would swell up. It would grow four, maybe even five times the normal, the normal population. Jerusalem will be bursting at the seams. People will be everywhere. Pilgrims will pitch the tents all over the place, mainly on the Mount of Olives to the, to the east. The place will be buzzing during this time, the time of Passover. And the feast demands weeks and weeks of preparation. It was immensely costly. And it was, in fact, a major disturbance to life for the locals. But it was worth it. The Passover was a big deal and a time of joy for the Jews. But why? What was so significant about Passover? Why is it that Yahweh commanded that if someone was to forsake or not partake in Passover when he is able, that that person was to be cut off from the people of Israel. What makes this so serious a feast that everyone ought to have been there? Well, the best way to answer that question is actually to go to the text that teaches that. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. And we'll read quite a substantial portion of Scripture. Far more than you're used to reading during my preaching, at least, and then, and then I will allow the text to teach us some things. But let me, let me give you a little bit of context while you're opening up your Bible. Israel, in this context here, as we get to Exodus chapter 12, Israel is in bondage. It's, it's under slavery to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And it's been there for about four centuries. God remembered the covenant that he made. You remember the covenant he made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And and it's during this time that he he raises up Moses, makes him a prophet, puts his word in Moses' mouth, and and he sends him to confront Pharaoh, to confront Pharaoh and, and demand that he set this people free. Set them free from bondage, to set them free from slavery, to being in chains. To make them free. That God had plans for this people. He's going to make them a a nation. He's going to give them an inheritance. He's going to give them a land. A people with a land. But more importantly, He's going to dwell among them. The greatest privilege is for people to know God. And God to know them. He will be their God and they they will be His people. They'll commune with Yahweh. And up until this point here, Exodus chapter 12, what has already transpired is that Moses has gone and presented towards Pharaoh and said to him, let my people go go let God's people go but he doesn't so God has carried with this message supernatural power that he has put upon the people of Israel Pharaoh and the people of Israel in the way of nine massive plagues every single one of them you'd think he's on the brink to give these people up but the hardening of his heart would not allow it nine plagues massive plagues the land is, is, is almost destitute at this point in time. So ravished by the plagues that have been sent. Nine massive plagues and the people of Israel are yet in bondage. Listen. Nine huge supernatural plagues by the power of the hand, the mighty hand of God. And the people of Israel are still in bondage, still in slavery, yet to be freed. And they will remain slaves until until a lamb is killed and his blood applied and they'll be set free. Let's read. Let's read from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, I'm going to read a little bit quickly, so bear with me because I can see the time slipping away. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and shall make your count for the lamb. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goat, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two posts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat it. Do not eat of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head will with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In the manner you shall eat it, you with your belt fastened and sandals on your feet and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day, this day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall... Hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought your, your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread bread until the 21st day of the month at evening for seven days no leaven is to be found in your house if anyone eats what is leavened that person will be cut off from the congregation of israel whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread then moses called all the elders of israel and said to them go and select a lamb go and select lamb for yourself according to your clans and kill the passover lamb take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite and a stat as a statue for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Amen. The Passover that we see here in John chapter 11, the Passover or the, it was the time of the Passover that we'll work our way through as we work our way through the gospel according to John, it, it commemorates this day, this exact day. The day where Yahweh passed over the people of Israel, the day where they were given salvation and their enemies were judged. It's the day of Yahweh's salvation. And the instruction is this. That the blood of a spotless male lamb who must be killed and his shed blood appropriated or applied upon the lintels and the doorposts of their homes. And they are to stay in the home that is covered in blood. As death passes over and spares their lives, but at the same time brings judgment upon the people of Israel who don't have blood on their homes. 
If the blood was not upon their homes, they would die. It's clear that if the blood was not on the lintel and on the doorpost, Yahweh will kill their firstborn. Israel's only hope on this day was the applied blood of the Lamb. The alternative is death. Beloved, I want to make this crystal clear right now. Israel is no more righteous than the Egyptians. Here in Exodus chapter 12, Israel was no more righteous than the Egyptians. They worshipped the same gods. Joshua chapter 24. Their lifestyles were no different to their neighbors. They lived practically the same way. They were no more worthy of God's salvation than their neighbors. So on that night when they were in their homes, because they were instructed to paint the, the blood on the lintels and the, and the doorposts and, and remain in the home until morning, when they're in their homes and they're hearing the weeping and the screaming and the mourning going on because their neighbors are losing their firstborn. Horrific experience, a traumatic experience. What should struck their heart is that we are no different to them. What is the difference between us and our neighbors? There is no difference apart from the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed that is painted upon the lintels and the doorposts. In their mind, they ought to be thinking, that could have been us, as they hear the weeping and the wailing of the neighbors. But we're here. And we're in a home where the blood is on our lintels, on, on our doorposts. And because of that, we're safe. We're safe. So, somehow, Yahweh, God is showing us mercy. And that mercy comes through the blood of the Lamb. That night they ate the flesh of the Lamb. It wasn't boiled, it was roasted with fire. The applied blood of the Lamb was their salvation and the flesh that of the Lamb was their sustenance. Because that night the mercy of God would be as such that they will be released from bondage and set free to become for once after centuries free people because of the blood of the Lamb. Everyone was to commemorate this event every year, all generations. Teach your children and your children's children forever is what the scripture says. Over and over and over again, they continued to teach their children through the observance of the Passover. Now it's true that they neglected the Passover for many years. But the Lord had given it to them as a commemoration that they would not forget, that their children would not forget, that this would be a perpetual memory before them. The sacrificial system comes in after this. This is before they leave Egypt. The sacrificial system was instituted when they were in the wilderness. But then the sacrificial system also brought in more animal sacrifices, more lambs that needed to be sacrificed. The, the term substitutionary had come to mind. And then atonement for sin would come to mind. But it's the blood of the lamb that needs to be sacrificed. Blood must be shed through the sacrificial system. Blood must be shed in the Passover. And the people were hearing this year in, year out, day in and day out with the sacrificial system. What's with the blood? Why is blood required to be shed? No doubt these are the questions on their minds. Why is a sacrificed lamb needed? Do you think the Israelites had those questions? I believe they did. What is the difference between us and the Egyptian neighbors? Apart from the fact that we put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts, many of the Egyptians were friends of the Israelites. In fact, when they departed, some Egyptians came with them. I don't think they were exactly jumping up and down, clapping their hands because all the firstborn among the Egyptians died. 
This would have been traumatic for them. What's the difference? Only that the promise of Yahweh to Father Abraham and Father Isaac and Father Jacob, a God who keeps his promise, who's merciful and gracious and provides the substance, the efficacy for that promise through a sacrificed lamb, through the blood of the lamb that was painted on their lintels and on their doorposts. The sacrificial language would continue to resonate throughout the history of the, of the people of Israel. It, it just continued to come in their mind. Even up until this point, the sacrifice wasn't foreign to them. No doubt they were seeing the Egyptian sacrifice in their, to their pagan gods in their pagan temples and their shrines. But the people of Israel had a history. They had a heritage. And when they thought of sacrifice, no doubt one of the preeminent sacrifices that would come to their mind was that of their father Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham was called by Yahweh and said, you take your son, your only son, the son of promise, and you take him up to Mount Moriah and you sacrifice him, you shed his blood because I have commanded. Abraham obeys. And even Isaac, who did not know of the plan, as he's approaching and walking up Mount, Mount Moriah, he, he says, Father, I have, the, I have the, the fire and we have the wood, but where is the lamb that is to be sacrificed? Even as far back as there, Isaac knew that a lamb needs to be provided. And then Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He ties up his son and before that knife plunges into his throat, he hears, don't you touch that boy. Paraphrasing the and behold, a ram, an adult male lamb, was caught in the thicket, and God did provide the sacrifice. And again, that lamb was sacrificed, blood was spilt. But do you think the people of Israel knew that the blood of animals could not suffice to bring salvation? How could the blood of animals cleanse sins? How could the blood of animals, beloved, cleanse the sins of mankind who was made in the very image of God and rebelled against God, committed the grandest of treason against God? Sin is so perverse and dark and depraved. How could the blood of an animal, even a blemishless animal, how could that atone for my sins? Year upon year, they saw the sacrifices in the Passover. The sacrifices in the temple. Year upon year, that the priests were like, like butchers, slaughtering animals, lambs, left, right and center. And they were commanded to teach their young the necessity of blood sacrifice. The theme of a lamb, the theme of sacrifice, the theme of shedding of blood, the theme of substitution was always on their mind. They, they probably couldn't put two and two together. But they saw the repetition in the temple. They saw the sacrifices over and again. And even though I believe they could not put two and two together, they simply trusted in the Lord and they trusted and they obeyed and they, and they could do nothing other than to say with Father Abraham, surely the Lord God will provide the sacrifice. And it must come in a way that is different to what we're seeing because thousands upon thousands, if not millions of lambs have been slaughtered over the years and how could the blood of an animal, of a lamb be efficacious to wipe away my sin or to give me salvation or for the angel of death to pass by and render myself living. The sacrifice, the blood substitute all themes running through their mind and then the theme of Messiah. And now they have that, that God passes over and atones for sin through, through the sacrificial lamb and the shed blood. And the, but then you have the, the Messiah and, and they're awaiting for the Messiah who's the anointed of God, the hope of Israel. And you have all these themes working through and, and they're not able to, to put it all together, but they can only have faith. 
And on this day in Exodus chapter 12, when the Passover was instituted, it was thousands of lambs that were sacrificed. You realize that? There would have been close to 2 million people that came out of Egypt. Thousands upon thousands of lambs that were sacrificed that day. And isn't it interesting that every time you come across the word lamb in Exodus chapter 12, it's in the singular. And although there are times where some English Bibles will translate it in the plural, I can assure you in the original it is singular. Lamb, not lambs. And when referring to the lamb, it doesn't say them, it says it. Even when speaking about the sacrifice for the people, thousands of lambs were sacrificed. But it speaks about lamb in the singular. And I'll tell you why I believe that is so. It's because God had one lamb in mind. From the very beginning, this is not a haphazard plan, a God who reacts. He's a God who has a decree from before he created a single Adam. And he had this one lamb in mind. And that lamb was his son who would become man. And when his son, who, who, who entered into his own creation, was introduced by a forerunner to his son, a forerunner that, was, that was, was sent by God and prophesied and foretold in the old, he opens his mouth before the crowds there in Israel. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, the significance of the Passover Lamb is because it was pointing to Christ. And throughout the New Testament, it's replete with that truth. You cannot unsee it if you've seen it. Go back and read the old and you'll say, wow, we can see that God is always, Christ is the center and the goal for everything in the Old Testament and the New. It is all about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All throughout the New Testament, and it was on the lips of Jesus in his teaching also. Remember Jesus? Of course you remember Jesus. In the... In his teaching at the time of the first Passover, you remember what he was doing? John introduces Christ back in John chapter 1. Actually, John chapter 2. After John chapter 1, where, where John the Baptist declares him as the Lamb of God. And Jesus goes in, makes a, a whip. And he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry, if you remember. He clears the temple and he probably makes some enemies in the meantime. But when he comes out, he says, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Destroy this temple, it's taken 46 years, and I will rebuild it in three days. And you might say, brother, how is that pointing to Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? The principle of types and shadows. A type and a shadow is pointing to something greater. The antitype, the fulfillment, the substance of the type. The principle of type and shadow is this. When the substance comes, according to Colossians, you do away with the type. And when Jesus says, you destroy the temple and in three days... In three days, he'll rebuild it. He's speaking about his own body. The disciples didn't understand, but we're told after the resurrection, they now, it made sense to them. So when Jesus says that I am the temple, my body, my resurrected body is the temple, then everything that took place in the temple has been now replaced with Jesus because he's the substance. It was always pointing to Christ. That means all the sacrifices, only one place approved by God. That where they, the people of Israel were able, permitted to sacrifice. And it was in the temple, on the altar, the bronze altar of the Lord. Only there. And Jesus said, you don't rebuild it. Once it's destroyed, leave it destroyed. Because my body is the temple. In other words, no more sacrifices. The once and for all sacrifice that is the Lamb of God is forever, perpetually efficacious for His people. No more. He came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The second Passover recorded for us in John chapter 6. That's where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. During the Passover, it's the feast of unleavened bread. And that's what they ate. Jesus pointing to himself and says, I am the bread of life. But then he goes on to say that you must eat of my flesh. The Passover, not only is the lamb's blood painted on the lintel on the doorpost, but also they were required to, to burn the burn with roast the, 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 the flesh. And they were to, to eat the flesh. And Jesus says, it's my flesh that you need to eat. I'm the one who sustains you. My blood will bring salvation, but it's my flesh that will sustain you, sustain the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and it will sustain his people forever, the flesh of Jesus Christ. At Gethsemane, when Jesus prays that this cup be removed from him, but not as he wills, he's speaking about the cup of the wrath, of the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon sin and unrighteousness, the wrath of God upon his sheep that that deserve to die perpetually under the wrath of God. When Jesus talks about drinking that cup, he speaks about drinking the cup of the wrath of God. And that is akin to the Passover lamb being burnt. Because fire in the Old Testament speaks of the wrath of God. And the, and the bronze altar there in the temple would, would have perpetual fire day and night 24-7. And when you put the, the lamb on there, the animals, they would be burning 24-7 because God's wrath cannot be appeased or satisfied by anything man does. But when Jesus comes and says, my body's a temple, no more, no more bronze altar, no more fire from heaven on that altar. Why? Because what Jesus has done is satisfied the wrath of God eternally. It became sin for our sake, he says, uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All the way through, Jesus was always always the Lamb of God. It's all through the New Testament. The upper room discourse with the disciples, they're there at the time of the Passover. After enjoying the Passover, Jesus speaks about blood, but he doesn't speak about the blood of the Lamb that was just sacrificed. He speaks about his own blood. My blood has been poured out for you, the blood of the covenant. The Apostle Peter says, You were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that, like that of the Lamb without spot or blemish. Where have you heard those words? And at the end of the Gospel, according to John, when the soldiers come to break the legs of all those who hang upon the cross, we read, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. And the other, they broke the legs also. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Then in a few verses it says, For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What scriptures? Well, we didn't get that far. But in Exodus chapter 12, a little further than where I took you, It's written of the Lamb, you shall not break any of its bones. And if that's not clear enough, just take him to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. The significance of the Passover is Christ. The substance of the Passover is Christ. So let me take you to that question. Back to that question that I didn't answer earlier. Will Jesus come to this feast? Will this Jesus come to this Passover? I said earlier the answer cannot be a yes or a no. Because Jesus is. Just like he is the resurrection and the life. Nothing pertaining to the resurrection, nothing pertaining to life can be explained or defined apart from him. Nothing in this festival, this feast, in God passing over the the sinful sinners that deserve death, the wages of sin is death. Nothing in it can be explained apart from the substance who is Christ. He defines it. He gives it its worth. 
Blood of the Passover lamb finds its efficacy in Jesus Christ. Not a single one of the lambs. Thousands upon thousands, even hundreds of thousands that were slaughtered and sacrifices. I stand upon the authority of Scripture and say not a single one of those animals was efficacious to take away a single sin. But in the heart of God, in the mind of God, they were all pointing to one lamb that will be sent, his own son, whose, whose blood is worthy. And he'll pay for the penalty of sin upon that cross. He'll shed his own blood. He'll stand under the wrath of God. Under the wrath of God, deserving of sinners. Look, we say those words, but we cannot fully understand them. The sinless Lamb of God, the one who knew no sin, the one who is pure and holy and faultless in obedience, perfect in every sense, had to stand under the wrath of God because He took my sins to give me His righteousness. To free me from the bondage of slavery to sin. To atone, to atone for my sin. To give me a righteousness that doesn't belong to me. To robe me in his perfection. In God's mind, from beginning to end, there was only one Lamb. The incarnate Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will Jesus come to this Passover? Jesus is everything that the Passover stands.